end of February, but Zechariah chapter 1, incredible book. I think you're going to really enjoy this, and I'm so glad that you've joined us here on uh, our online service on Wednesday night. Um, just, uh, just to remind you that uh, as we go into the book of Zechariah, uh, Zechariah is one of the post-captivity uh, pro- uh, prophets that come on the scene. He is both a prophet and a priest, but he is prophesying along with Haggai, as we saw last week, uh, those two chapters in Haggai that would uh, you know, tell the people to get back to the work of the Lord. And so the people are back from the captivity. Haggai and Zechariah are on the scene prophesying. It would be later on that Malachi comes on the scene. He is the last of the prophets that we have in the Old Testament section. The prophets actually continue to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus said, uh, is the last of the prophets. But between Malachi and John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, when the announcement comes that John the Baptist is going to be born, those are called the silent years. The silent years, which are 400 years. And in that time, we know that uh, the Grecian Empire would uh, come on the scene. Daniel prophesies uh, about the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great. And then Rome comes on the scene as well. So Zechariah here is speaking right after the return of of the uh, Jews to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so, Father, we ask that you bless this time as we study your word. The book of Zechariah is such an incredible book, 14 chapters that are very practical but per, very prophetic as well. So we look forward to looking at these pages and, and looking at these things uh, that were written. And your word is established forever. Uh, the grass will fade, the flower will uh, go away, but we do know that the word of God will not. It will be established forever. Even as Jesus said, my words will never pass away. And Lord, we know that we can look at this and we can learn. So I pr- ask that you would just touch our hearts tonight, wherever we're at, at home, most of us, or um, somewhere else watching online, that you would just teach us and uh, help us make application as we look at the implication of what's going on here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now keep in mind that it is Zerubbabel, the civil leader, that comes back. Cyrus, after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, we actually read about that in the book of Daniel in chapter 4, when Belshazzar is having this feast with his lords, and they're toasting to the gods of Babylon, and the handwriting's on the wall behind him, and Daniel's brought up to interpret the handwriting on the wall, say that Belshazzar, that you're going to be killed tonight, and that your kingdom is going to fall to the Medes and the Persians. So Cyrus comes into the city, as prophesied by Isaiah, that he diverted the flow of the Euphrates rivers, came in, killed Belshazzar, and then Daniel ended up being in leadership, actually, as you read chapter 6 of the book of Daniel. And uh, in chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, you see how it was uh, Daniel that was thrown in the lion's den. But actually, it's chapter 5 that speaks of the fall of Belshazzar. Chapter 4 of Daniel speaks of uh, the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. But you can look at that, and you can read chapter 5 of Daniel, seeing how he would interpret the handwriting on the wall. And so Cyrus, that Isaiah says in chapter 44, going into chapter 45, 
speaks about how Cyrus is, is being used of the Lord, a servant of the Lord, to make that decree that they could come back 536 B.C., 70 years of captivity, beginning in 605 B.C. to 536 B.C., the 70 years are over, just as Jeremiah had prophesied, that they would go off into captivity for 70 years, but only a small amount of Jews came back to Jerusalem, and the city laid in rubble. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city, destroyed Solomon's temple, and they would begin to, as the decree was given, that they could rebuild the temple. They, they build the altar so they can do sacrifices. They build the foundation of the temple, and then the work stopped. So we looked at all of that last time in Haggai, and the work stopped for for 14 years, and then Haggai comes on the scene and said, it's time to return to the work of the Lord, to building the temple of the Lord. And we know that um, as we looked at that, God raising up Haggai, who confronted the, the people on the issue, was very direct. And the reason that you lack is because you have neglected the Lord's work. Zechariah, as we go through his book, is more of an encourager, even though things are tough now. And the Lord has a good future and a hope for you. Now, Zechariah, his name means Yahweh remembers. And the people needed to know that the Lord remembered them. That the Lord wasn't just interested in the temple, in the building itself, but he was interested in them. And that's the thing to remember, I think, a real key for us that are in ministry that as we're building the, 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 and doing the work of the Lord, building and helping build and add to the kingdom of God, that he, yes, wants us to be involved in his work. And we need to be about doing the work of the Lord, but he's interested in us. And it's not just a church building or how many people are coming or how popular we are. He's interested in us that he desires to use us to be vessels for his purposes, for his glory, for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And they needed to know it was more than just a building, that it was that he was interested in them and them personally and wanted them to do well. So here is Zechariah comes on the scene. And as you go through this book, as I mentioned to you already, 14 chapters, and the Lord of hosts is mentioned 53 times in these 14 chapters. Jerusalem is mentioned 44 times. The restoration of Israel is mentioned 19 times. The Lord reigns from Jerusalem 12 times. So we see that there's an emphasis on future prophetic events, and he is going to give some of the most incredible, remarkable prophecies of Messiah and Jerusalem that we have in the scriptures. So it is very unique, and we will see that also is an encouragement as we go through this, not only being prophetic, but very practical as we look at this book. So let's begin to do that in chapter 1 of Zechariah, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. So one month after Haggai's second prophecy here, we see once again that along with Haggai, the dates are given when they prophesied Haggai's Haggai's prophecies, only his ministry that, that's recorded for us, only lasted about four months. And the people responded to Haggai, began the work of the Lord. And here's Zechariah. He is prophesying at the same time uh, that Haggai is telling the people to get back to 
the work of the Lord. This is 520 B.C. This is about 14 years after they stopped the work of the Lord, and they began once again in rebuilding the temple. Now, as you look at Scripture, there's at least 27 different Zacharias that are in the Bible. And here, he's the son of a prophet. We know that Zechariah, he would be martyred because Jesus said so in chapter 23 in, in verse 35. You recall that Jesus, as he gave those woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said that, you know, that, that your fathers came on the scene and killed the prophets from A to Z to Zechariah. And so he, it seems like as though he would be more, uh, put to death uh, for his ministry. And as we continue reading in verse 2, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, now turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. So we see the Lord of hosts again, used over and over again that term in these 14 chapters and he's recalling how their fathers had rebelled, which led them into their captivity. And we saw that all through those chapters that we have seen from Isaiah all the way up to Haggai with the major prophets of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, and then the minor prophets as well that came on the scene. And they refused to turn to uh, the Lord, back to the Lord, and give up their idol worship. But here to call once again, you return to me and you will see me keeping my promise and protection for you. I will show myself strong on your behalf like what I have done before. So it's a continual exhortation that the Lord gives to us. He desires for us to stay close to him. And there is always a call, and I'm very thankful for it because I have a tendency, it's very easy to drift away. The writer of Hebrews says, he warns us, lest you drift away. And, and you can drift very easily. You're in a boat, uh, maybe you're on a paddleboard or something in a lake, and, and the waves begin to drift you away, and you don't really pay attention, and all of a sudden you realize you're far away from the shore. Well, the Lord always is calling us to, to keep close to him, and when we do drift away or we do begin to stray away, he says, return to me, and that's what he's doing here. And he's telling them, don't be like your fathers, your fathers that were involved in idol worship. Don't go back to those idols. Don't make the same mistake that you did, your fathers did. And in verse 5, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did not overtake your fathers. So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. As we continue reading here, their fathers have passed away. He says, where are they? Look at the consequences that happened because of them. Look what happened at 70 years of captivity for Judah. And then the house of Israel up north in 722 B.C. that was taken off by the Assyrians. The consequences have been great. 
So the prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, as they said, you know, they, they did not heed to the commandments of the Lord. Um, and they did not heed to the warning of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever, just as I said. I'm so grateful for God's word stands forever because, you see, man's word changes. And, and one of the blessings that we have as a Christian is that we can understand this, that God's word is truth, absolute truth, and it is right and it is good, and it is perfect, and we can trust the word of the Lord, and it doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, culture comes along, the philosophy of culture, the, the ways of man, and it changes constantly, and then people are, are following what's the latest trend, what's the latest you know, uh, philosophy, what's the latest you know, popular thing that's going on in culture, and we can be established in God's word and there's strength and stability and there's safety when we're established in God's word. And we need to always remember that. That's why it's good for us to go through the scriptures. And the best thing that I can do as a pastor for you is continue to teach you the word of God in the environment of love, especially in the days in which we are in. And we talked about that just recently in that uh, series that we did in the priority of the word and the priority of prayer and moving forward in difficult days. And that, as Paul said, in the last days it will be perilous times. But Timothy, you must continue in the scriptures that you've learned from childhood. That is the real key because there are many in the church that are saying right now, how do we reach the next generation? How do we you know, reach people? How do we do well in our Christian walk? You continue in the scriptures. You continue in the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving that to others. And that's what I see. I, I think that perhaps if you followed us as we've been going through the Old Testament and as we go through scriptures, that is the call. That we continue in God's ways, his commands, through the word of God, knowing his ways, staying close to him. And, and that's the real key for you and for me. So in verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Sabbath, in the second year of Darius, and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses red, sorrel, and white. As we begin to look at this, three months have passed, and now it's February, uh, is what they calculate at 519 B.C. Zechariah is now given a vision of the four horses and the riders among the myrtle trees. We continue to look at that in verses 9 through 11. And then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. These four riders here, uh, as they are sent to and fro across the earth, it's like they're patrolling is what they are. God knows the affairs of the nations of the world, and we need to remember that. Remember, contrary to... As we see Satan, who's like a roaring lion, uh, seeking whom he may devour. Remember that in Job chapter 1, that when Satan was before the Lord, and we're going to see that vision in chapter 3 here as we continue on, that there's Satan standing before the Lord, and he's the accuser, the brethren who accuses us day and night. 
but we know that it is uh, God that asked Satan, what have you been doing, Satan? No, going to fro across the earth. Well, have you considered Job? My servant Job, he's blameless and upright. And, and Satan said, yeah, I've considered him. And Satan's like a roaring lion. He goes to and fro, and he considers us. And that word considered there in Job chapter 1 is a military term. He's saying, yeah, I've studied him. Like a general would study the enemy to try to get a foothold and attack them and defeat them. And that's what Satan does. But the Lord, he also is one that he goes to and fro across the whole earth. We know that. Remember in, in Second Chronicles chapter 16, King Asa was a godly king. And for the first 30-some years of his reign, I believe like 35 years, that he was trusting the Lord. But then he came up with his own plan. And the prophet came to him and said, Asa, you had trusted the Lord, but all of a sudden you came up with your own plan, your own ways. And the Lord, his eyes go to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. So remember this, that the Lord, his eyes go to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. Sometimes we can think, Lord, do you see me? Do you even care? Do you even know what it is that I'm going through? And his eyes see you, and he knows where our heart is at, and we need to continue to be loyal to him, trusting in him, walking with him. And he promises that he'll show himself strong on our behalf as we do those things. So the eyes of the Lord are on us. And the spiritual realm is, is pretty awesome as we see these, these writers, these four writers. Now, there are those who will come up with different meanings on the colors of the horses. Some try to relate this to the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6, the first four seals that were opened up. And I don't really see the connection here. Uh, some have suggested that the different colors, horses mean different angelic offices. But we do know that um, these four writers are here, and they report to the angel of the Lord, and things are quiet among the Gentile nations. And we see that in verse 12, that then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered to the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 17. My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So as we read this, the earth was quiet, but it wasn't for the Jews in Jerusalem. They, they were still going through difficulties. And here God confirms that even though judgment had come to Jerusalem, that he was still zealous for his city. He, he's, he's jealous for you and for me. Now, when God is a jealous God and he's jealous for us, it doesn't mean that he's jealous of, of everyone else, not in a weird way, like when we become jealous. Um, we know that the religious leaders 
They brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, as we talked about last week and a week before we read that Pontius Pilate knew that they did that because of jealousy, because of envy. Well, jealousy of God is, is a righteous jealousy. He's jealous for us. He doesn't want us to stray off and, and pursue the world and pursue other things because he knows we're going to get hurt. And he desires for us to stay close to him. And as the Lord dealt with them, we also know that God's going to deal with those nations. And he still had a plan for Jerusalem. We're going to see this here. He still has a plan for his people and a restoration that's going to happen. And as we looked at the prophecies of God judging those nations, we've seen it in the proclamations of the nations in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, we looked at that that came against the Jews and Judah. Yeah, Babylon was to be used as an instrument of judgment. Uh, as you remember, just not long ago, we looked at the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk was uh, the prophet that said, why are you using the Chaldeans? Lord, why are they being uh, used as an instrument to come against us. They're wicked. But then God said, I will deal with them, Habakkuk chapter 2. And here, as we read these verses, in verses 16 and 17, God's going to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. The temple would be rebuilt four years after this prophecy was given, and Jerusalem is still God's chosen city. It's, it's not Rome. It's not Babylon. It's, it's not any other city. Jerusalem still, as we're going to see, is the apple of God's eye. And Jerusalem is still, as we're going to see, the amazing prophecies here in the book of Zechariah is still the center of prophecy, as Zechariah would tell us, that Jerusalem's going to end up being a cup of trembling to all the nations. And we're going to see that here in a few weeks when we end the book of Zechariah. But let's finish the chapter in verse 18. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there are four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? So he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? So he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head, but the craftsmen were coming to terrify them to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. And as we read this, speaking of the nations, for them that scattered Jerusalem and Judah, and God pronounces judgment that would come upon these nations. Now, horn in Scripture speaks of power. And here, the power of these Gentile nations, Daniel chapter 7, um, Daniel chapter 2. Some believe these four horns are what are spoken of in Daniel's prophecies in those two chapters, that Babylon, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and Rome. Now, the craftsmen coming to deal with the horns uh, are the first craftsmen. And as you follow Daniel's prophecy, Babylon comes on the scene. Well, God would use the Medo-Persian Empire to defeat Babylon. That's already taken place at the time that this prophecy is given. But the Medo-Persian Empire is going to be dealt with and defeated by the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great. And then the, the Grecian Empire is going to fall to Rome, the Roman Empire, and then the Roman Empire kind of declined. It was never really defeated, kind of imploded within itself. But there's going to be this revived Roman Empire that we have talked about in our prophecy updates that Daniel speaks about in his book and this revived Roman Empire or this new Roman Empire in the last days is then going to be, is going to be crushed. 
in God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus will establish his kingdom, and that will be the final kingdom that will last forever. So chapter 2, as we see that there's a vision of a measuring line, then I raised my eyes and look, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what it is with and what's its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and the livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So this is interesting here. Zechariah here, as he sees a man with a measure line in his hand, and he's going to measure the city of Jerusalem. It reminds me a little bit of what we see in the book of Ezekiel in chapters 40 through the end of the book, that the millennium temple and the millennium reign is all these measurements that are there and all these cubits, and we read a lot about it and other measurements that are given there. But obviously, as you read here, as we did in verses 3 through 5, it speaks of the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, where the nations of the world will come up to worship Jesus, who is in the midst of the city. And there won't be a physical wall that is of stone around her, but I will be the wall of fire. Isn't that incredible? And we also know that uh, in Ezekiel's prophecies that it says that Jerusalem, uh, that the Lord there himself is going to be at the temple. And the temple, not only the glory of the Lord, is going to fill Jerusalem and the temple there at that time, but also we are told that, that his glory is going to fill all the earth. And righteousness will fill the earth as, and his glory as waters cover the sea. And it's so, going to be so glorious. I can't wait for that time. And as I read these prophecies, they really encourage me because I look at the world today and I see that there's fire, but it's fire of you know, destruction and darkness and, and sin and depravity that's going on. That's the fire that we see. And, and literally, we see fire going on. We saw it last month burning up all those homes, um, drought and all these things that are taking place. Uh, but I can't wait until the glory of the Lord, the light of the Lord, uh, here will be a, a fire all around here, and I'll be the glory in her midst. Uh, we have a wonderful future, and we need to always remember that. And in verse 6, up, up flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up Zion, escape you who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. As we read this, God's calling the exiles back to Jerusalem. Now, most of them were back in Babylon. And the reason that they were is they were comfortable. They stayed there. Only a small amount of people, 50,000, came back to Jerusalem. Now, you might think, well, that's quite a few. But there's like 2 to 3 million people off into exile. And Jeremiah in chapter 29 wrote a letter and said, listen, you know, be established. Have sons and daughters so you don't decline. Live peaceably in the land. And they ended up becoming successful back there, and many of them stayed. They said, we're not going to go back to Jerusalem, and we're not going to rebuild the temple and rebuild God's city. It's too hard, all the rubble, everything else. We're comfortable here. And, and that can be the case for, for a lot of Christians today. And not to say this with condemnation or condemning, but I love Haggai when he says, consider your ways. The Lord says, consider your ways. Are you neglecting where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing? 
doing the work of the Lord just because you're going to live for yourself. And that's something that all of us have to go to the Lord and allow him to speak to our hearts in that. Um, and because he desires for us to keep priority living for him and looking to him. So we know that um, they were comfortable. And as we read this, the end of the tribulation period, God's going to gather his people who have been dispersed throughout the world. And the application for you and for me is, listen, don't just live in the world. Flee Babylon and draw close to him, I think, uh, as the Lord would say to us and remind us. In verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, and he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I like that. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Uh, God promises to protect his people, that, you know, that you will be that. Uh, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, uh, of God's eye. Now, the, David, he would write in the Psalms, I believe, in Psalm 17, um, that he would write that, Lord, let me be the apple of your eye. And our eyes are very sensitive, and uh, we know that. And you know, uh, the eye can easily be injured. It needs to be protected. Uh, and as that's why something comes in immediately, our, our eyes just begin to close. Well, God's going to protect the apple of his eye. David, I'm going to protect you. You're the apple of my eye. And so is Jerusalem, and so are you and I. We're the apple of God's eye. Uh, a, a, a place of protection that he's going to provide and protect for us. And then in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. And I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will take possession of Judah and his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will gain, again choose Jerusalem. In verse 13, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So the Lord is coming back to dwell with his people, and it will be a time of singing, it will be a time of rejoicing, and many nations will be joined to the Lord that day, not just for Israel, but all who belong to him. The only place here in the Bible where the phrase holy land is used, we just read it in these verses here, but I like what it says, that he is aroused from his holy habitation. The Lord is aroused. He's looking for. This is something he isn't up in heaven going, oh, I guess when do I have to go and, and establish my kingdom? When do I have to go and dwell in Jerusalem? He, he's aroused. You know, this is something that the Lord's looking forward to and a final culmination of things and we should be looking forward to as well. And then chapter 3, the vision of the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So the angel of the Lord is speaking, I believe, of Jesus. And we will see later that Satan is there to oppose him uh, as we read this. Satan hates it when you and I come into the presence of the Lord. He doesn't like it. And again, as I made reference to Job chapter 1, that there is uh, Satan accusing Job. Um, oh, he just, you put a hedge of protection around him, remove it, and he's going to fold. He'll, he'll curse you. And Satan, Revelation chapter 12, as I already mentioned, as many of you know, is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. He will not stop. And he'll accuse us and accuse us and he accuses us. 
And as we continue reading here in chapter 3, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So Revelation 12 goes on to say that, that Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren, accuses us day and night, they, he was overtaken by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. The Lord, he is our advocate. He is our Savior. We respond by the testimony of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, that I've been forgiven uh, and I am washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been washed with uh, his atoning work. And notice that Zechariah came back to this familiar theme that God has chosen Jerusalem. It's important to remember that because it has important prophetic uh, significance. But the Lord has chosen you and me. And the Lord has plucked us out of the fire, the fire of hell, especially speaking of Jerusalem that was burnt down by Babylon, but he's plucked us out of the eternal hell. And we belong to him. And he has plucked us out as Satan accuses us. And verse 3, we read, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now a wonderful illustration of a spiritual truth that is here. That Joshua the high priest, this is not Joshua of Jericho fame, okay? This is Joshua the high priest coming back with Zerubbabel. And as the high priest, he would have the priestly garments. He would have the breastplate. He have the mitre. He has, you know, the beautiful robes of the high priest. And people would look at the high priest, and they would say, oh, he looks so righteous. He looks so wonderful. Look at those robes. He's such a righteous person. And here there's a spiritual truth that is given to us that Joshua here, as he stands before the Lord, he is in filthy garments standing before the angel. And it is true, as Isaiah tells us, that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. To the people, they were righteous. But in front of the Lord, all of us have sinned. And when Satan accuses us, he really doesn't have to lie. Jeff has failed. Jeff lied. Jeff, you know, did this. He said that. He doesn't have to lie. But the thing is that I am forgiven. And I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's so wonderful, that truth. And I can't present my own righteousness before the Lord because my righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags before God. There are many people that think that they're going to be able to stand before God, you know, once they breathe their last and they close their eyes in their own righteousness. And none of us will be able to do that. That is the truth of Scripture that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we need to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ as we are forgiven. And that's what is illustrated here as we go to verse 4. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let him put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. As you read the end of the book of Isaiah, it's so wonderful that that is given uh, how, you know, we are ones that we are all like an unclean thing in chapter 64. And all our righteousness, as I've mentioned to you and quoted to you, are like filthy rags before the Lord. But he says that we are the ones that he has 
We fade like the leaf, and our iniquity like the wind has taken us away. There's no one calls on his name. And he goes on and he talks about how we have been clothed and adorned and decked uh, with his loving kindness and his goodness as you read the book of Isaiah. And, uh, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, we are so grateful for that, that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to remember. The only way that we can stand righteous before God is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are called to holiness as we read this. The turban is mentioned here, thinking that uh, of holiness for us in Christ, inscribing holiness to the Lord. We are to hold every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Let's continue reading verse 6. Then the angel Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. So now that we've been clothed and forgiven and cleansed by Jesus Christ, he says, number one, you continue to walk with me. Continue to walk with me, and then second of all, be used of me. And that's what we are to do. Just There's all kinds of, of you know, books and the secret of successful Christian life and, and your Christian walk. Listen, there's no secret about it. That is that as we come to Christ, what we are to do is we are to continue to walk with Christ and then allow him to use us how he wants us and to know this, that he has called us to holiness. He's called us to a better way of living. And living in holiness is the way to be free. Living in holiness is the way that we are blessed and free to live for him. That's what grace is all about. Should we continue in sin that grace abounds? Paul says certainly not. We're free from that. We, we identify with Christ. We live in a newness of life. And, and once we make that our own and understand that, then it's so wonderful just to stay close to the Lord. Our devotion to the Lord uh, is given. Our love for the Lord uh, is, is our foundation. And then we just continue to walk with him and be used of him. And he does want to use us in these days that we are in and in our lives. But in verse 8, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch." And for behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon these stones are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And so the branch here, um, speaking of Messiah, it's used as a title for Messiah. You can make reference in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, the stone with seven eyes, which could represent the knowledge um, and the perfection and the fullness and the wisdom of, of God, the Messiah. He's all-knowing. And, and then the peace and righteousness are going to fill the land. And when that happens, I like as the end of chapter 3, everyone will be uh, invite his neighbor and under his vine and under his fig tree. It speaks of joy. It speaks of prosperity. It speaks of provision. It speaks of peace. So, Father, we thank you for these chapters. And we look forward to continuing through this incredible book of Zechariah. And we have learned that, that Lord, that, that we are the apple of your eye. And I pray that we always remember that. 
We have a special place. We don't come in our own righteousness, but we come. And even as Satan accuses us, day and night, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, that is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us, and by the word of testimony that I belong to you, Lord, and and I want to walk with you and stay close to you. And as we do, that you desire to use us. So I thank you for these reminders. I thank you for this book, Zechariah, and how we're going to gain from it, how practical it is. But also, you have a plan for us. And even as he would say, these millenniums pass, you know, 2,600 years ago, 2,500 years ago, that Jerusalem, uh, my promise to Jerusalem hasn't changed. And I'm going to restore Jerusalem, and the Lord of hosts is going to be there in Jerusalem, and all the glory of the Lord is going to fill Jerusalem and all the earth, that, Lord, we're a part of that. We're a part of that, that you're going to see us through, and we can be confident of this very thing, that he has begun a good work in us, will bring it to completion. So we thank you for that, and we thank you that we can stand on your promises in the future and hope that we have in Christ Jesus, because we are forgiven and belong to you. So I pray bless everyone in the rest of the week. Uh, looking forward to meeting again on Sunday. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Hope to see you on Sunday as we return back to Matthew.